from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by three guests on an episode we're going to call uh, Tel Aviv to Texas. Um, So for those not familiar with Tel Aviv, uh, it's in Israel, halfway around the world from here. I would love to have a direct non-stop flight out of the state of Texas on over there. So if you're listening and you work for an airline, uh, there's demand for cybersecurity connections between those two places. And uh, let's see what we can do to get a flight uh, from one of uh, our major airports here in the state of Texas. So uh, thank you guys for uh, making the non-direct flight trip around the world to uh, come in and visit us. And Will, thank you for uh, helping get this organized. Absolutely. Happy to be here, Brett. So uh, can you all go through and uh, introduce yourselves and uh, a bit about your background for our listeners? Sure, I'll start, Brett. Uh, Will Garrett, I run a program called Cybersecurity San Antonio here in San Antonio. It's a public-private partnership between the city and the business community. It was created about two and a half years ago to enhance the brand, grow the reputation, and largely increase the ecosystem, the jobs, the companies here around cybersecurity. And I also run an incubator that's located here in the Rand Building at Geekdom uh, called BuildSec Foundry. It's focused on launching early-stage product security startups. Hi, my name is Leonid Stillman, two PhDs, professor of two universities, Tel Aviv University and the City University of New York, founder and CEO of three companies, now with Silverford. Hi, my name is uh, Head Kovetz. I'm the, one of the founders and the CEO of uh, Silverford. Uh, my background is mostly uh, in cybersecurity from the Israeli Intelligence Corps, Unit A200. Uh, over there was uh, leading several teams uh, doing cyber uh, operations and later we worked as a cybersecurity product manager uh, for Verint, uh, managing uh, large-scale products. Excellent. Well, thank you uh, all for uh, joining us today. So I want to just open up as we go through here. So um, we've got folks with a, a mix of experience in academic research and commercial sector, building products and services for private enterprise out there. And then you've got a mix of background in uh, doing cybersecurity for a nation and now moving to delivering cybersecurity solutions for uh, the private sector. Maybe you sell to public sector customers as well, but delivering a commercial product versus protecting a country. So uh, how do you think uh, those are different, and then what sort of similarities and overlaps did you see moving from one area to the other? So for me, one of the you know main things that I had to change in, in the way I think when I moved from uh, from uh, protecting you know or from looking at it in a national scale into the commercial area is you know just the fact that attacks are very different. The way uh, enterprises are being attacked is usually with you know very common uh, uh, types of attacks and. You know, you had to change your life from uh, from very tailored attacks into something that is much more uh, uh, common. Uh, also, you know, when I was on the side of uh, protecting nations, you just have so much data that you can analyze and find trends across an entire country. So when you look at a specific organization, of course, it's a harder task. And what about on the, the research side or taking research into a commercial product? Yeah, you know, like a mathematician is sometimes uh, being compared with the crazy tailor 
which produce dresses with for seven legs, five heads, and there are dresses always for octopus and for a frog, but most of dresses nobody needs. This is what we are doing in academy. In the real business, it's different. You have to do something that people will indeed will use, and you have to be focused. Yeah. So on the, that commercial side, you're saying most of the attacks out there, people are hitting targets of opportunity. They're not picking a specific target and figuring out how to get into it. Yeah, in many cases it is. There are, of course, some uh, you know APTs targeting specific organizations trying to get in, but you know the amount of resources that uh, you know uh, a civilian group of uh, of cyber attackers has is uncomparable to a nation. So obviously the types of tools and the type of attacks are almost uncomparable. It's a whole different world. Yeah. So. Uh, as you came out to commercialize a product now with the company you're running today, uh, which out of the whole broad ecosystem of cybersecurity problems are you trying to solve? So we are focused on uh, secure authentication and solving the problem of uh, you know identity-based attacks, uh, credential theft, and and misuse. So we believe that this is a, a major uh, pain point today. And if you look at uh, cyber attacks throughout the world, you see that. Uh, you know, almost every data breach involves the use of stolen, compromised credentials. And we believe that this is something that, you know, has been around for many years. There are so many products in the market in this uh, area, and still the problem is unsolved, right? Because still the majority of attacks are leveraging stolen credentials. So we want to solve it in a more holistic way. So uh, does this mean solving it with fingerprints or retina scans or uh, does it how do you you break down and try to solve this problem so actually when we looked at this problem we we thought of it a little bit differently we think that all of these you know advanced authentication matters that exist like as you said fingerprints and face recognition and all kinds of you know mobile based authentication we think that they are you know good stuff and a lot of companies are, are working to make them even better but we think that there's a bigger problem today. In enterprises and you know, in companies in general, most of the systems still rely on basic passwords. So even though you have so many advanced technologies in the market, most of your internal systems, most of your servers, applications, infrastructure components, IoT devices, they just don't support these technologies. So what we are actually doing, we created a solution that allows you to enable strong authentication across your entire network, your entire cloud environment. Uh, without actually changing your devices and your individual systems in a very broad manner. So as you, you have uh, embedded technology. I've got an HP printer. That HP printer has a, a web interface to it, and I can't turn on two-factor inside that HP printer. But you're saying that there, with your technology, you've created a way to put a multi-factor authentication in front of that printer that I can't upgrade firmware on, and it's vulnerable. That's right. And, you know, even if you're accessing it with something less standard than, let's say, web, even if you're accessing it with some, uh, you know, more low-level protocols, if you're trying to use SSH or any kind of, you know, network authentication protocol to access it, we can protect authentication to it. So it's a whole new approach of how to implement authentication. And basically what we say is, you know, Today, there are just so many types of devices and resources in organizations, on-prem, in the cloud. 
it's impossible to expect that all of them will support strong authentication. We need to come up with a solution that delivers authentication from one unified platform into all those systems without actually expecting the systems themselves to handle it. Yeah. And and so as you said, there have been this has kind of gone on for years and there have been all sorts of different ways folks have uh, tried to solve this, whether it's with a, a thin client product to where you're authenticating with multi-factor into the thin client and that thin client then connects through or on the SSH side, most of the ops teams, if you're out there on one of those and you're listening, you're like, well, we have bastion servers that log everything and then we access the non-secure systems or non-multi-factor authentication systems after we go through a bastion that has multi-factor. Uh, with all of the, the historical things that have happened, like what have what has gone wrong there what are you guys doing that's different to make this easier and more comprehensive so basically the way authentication works today is that if you have you know some endpoint or device and you have a resource that you want to access you need both of them to support you know the advanced authentication method that you want to use so basically they just use passwords in most cases and you want to upgrade them into something stronger you need to do a lot of integration to do it, right? You need to either install agents or, you know, you can call it a thin agent, but still, or SDKs or, you know, all kind of configurations. Sometimes this is just complex. In other cases, it's impossible, right? Because there are a lot of systems that you just can make these changes in. So we are working with, you know, healthcare organization, energy companies, financial institutions, places where there are a lot of systems that... It's just, you know, impossible to make these changes in. So what we do, which is uh, so different, is we take a network-based approach to authentication where we put our uh, solution in your network, and our solution basically looks at every authentication that goes inside the corporate network or cloud and can enforce advanced authentication on top of the existing protocols. So if we see that someone is authenticating from this endpoint to this resource, we can intervene and trigger some additional layer of authentication on top of it in a way that both your endpoint and your server are not even aware that anything changed. So using network level traffic inspection and without giving away all your secret sauce, you're uh, encapsulating an additional layer of authentication and identification on that request before it goes through and, author and authorizes on the endpoint. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And of course, the main challenge here is the fact that most of these authentication protocols are encrypted. Right? Yeah. So this is what, you know, the main thing that we had to overcome and, you know, the main part of our technological achievement is the ability to actually analyze these authentication protocols, even though they are encrypted, to be able to even, you know, figure out what's going on and intervene when we need to. Yeah, but if you're a, a utility company still running Windows NT4 with some NTLM authentication, that's only encrypted if you have bad mathematicians. If you have good mathematicians these days, that's not encrypted anymore. <laughs> if you're out there listening and you're running NT4 and you're running NTLM auth from those days, please get this solution or something else because it's not securing anything from anybody <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I know. I'm with you, but still, we are seeing companies and you wouldn't believe the kind of companies that we see that still have the majority of their authentication being done with NTLM. Yeah. You know, it's almost impossible to get rid of. So, but you know, even if you are using better protocols, let's say you're using, you know, Kerberos, which is supposedly better, still it's password based and, you know, easy, quite easy to hack. 
Yeah. You, you can consider us as some kind of authentication authority. Actually, we are forcing any authentication in uh, on the network to ask us before they will give okay. Yeah. So, uh, and so you guys are, are building this uh, company and you're headquartered in Tel Aviv. Yeah. And then looking to uh, sell product in both the Israeli market as well as the U.S. Are you going uh, to other markets in Europe and elsewhere as well right now? So our focus at the moment is the U.S. So obviously we have our, you know, uh, customers in Israel where we, you know, can work with them very closely and test all the new features. But the main focus is the U.S. market, which is still the main one. Yeah. So uh, for those uh, out there not familiar with um, Israel and the, the tech scene going on there, um, who's good to, to share some high-level background about uh, kind of how this came to be? Because um, from a venture capital perspective, uh, at a density level, um, Israel rivals Silicon Valley on a number of dollars per capita that gets spent on new tech investment. Um, some years it's ahead, some years it's behind, uh, but it's at a global rival peer level with Silicon Valley, and, and those are markets are far ahead of even Boston or anywhere else uh, on a dollar's perspective. How did that come about um, over there in Israel to really create this um, technology center? Yeah, first of all, it's a country which have a lot of enemies around, and it needs to to develop its uh, own technology. So when we are talking about specifically about um, security, then you should have in mind that uh, army has actually um, exclusivity on brains of uh, young people. At the age of uh, 17, there is a national test, and the best people picked up to serve in the cyber unit. So it's a quite different from the situation of NSA. So after the four, six years, they are super professionals and they are going to the civil market. And of course, there are a lot of venture capitalists who would like to invest in people who are already ready. They, you don't need to train them anymore. Yeah. And, and this has been going on for a, a while over there. Uh, this, so it's, some areas you have emerging tech scenes like we have here in San Antonio, uh, where we may have had a handful of companies a long while ago, but it's really starting to turn the corner now. But um, Israel's produced a pretty steady stream of high-quality product companies now for the better part of 20 years. I know, I mean, I started my career working on uh, checkpoint firewalls on Sun Hardware, and uh, the checkpoint software came from Israel. And uh, our company is working closely on a joint solution with uh, Checkpoint. So, uh, Will, and for the local listeners here in the San Antonio audience, for those that are uh, listening to us on 1200 WAI, uh, can you share some of the the trip that and background on that that spawned uh, this interview that we have here today? Absolutely. And I, and from our role at Cybersecurity San Antonio, a lot of what I do day to day is look at other ecosystems and how are they structured and organized and funded and who's doing it the best. And naturally, through a little bit of what Leonid and Head just talked about, Israel and the moniker Startup Nation is absolutely correct, but especially around the cyber, cybersecurity space, we knew as an industry we needed to go 
visit, engage companies and founders like Head, engage what we would say here at least incubators, accelerators, kind of the geekdoms of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, Beersheba over there. And so it came to fruition about a month ago. The mayor of San Antonio, Ron Nirenberg, laid a trade trade mission over to Israel where we had a chance to meet with basically who we would want to meet with over there and learn both historically how it had come to be and then what they were doing today. And some of the factors you mentioned, the you know, largest tech companies in the world all have an amazing presence there. 350 multinational R&D corporations. If you look at the state of the Israel or even down to the municipal level, the amount they invest in R&D and how they look at ROI on that investment and ROI on investment in the startups is very different than America looks at it or San Antonio looks at it. Um, I mean, I think, Brett, you're familiar with this. If you think about San Antonio and or any city in the United States, especially in Texas, and how a local government would help incentivize startup and IP creation, we tend to think about job creation and where is the company going to be located. And so much of what we heard in Israel was focused on just being that initial spark to help the entrepreneur launch something and create that IP with the understanding that at times that IP may leave the country. But that's okay. If you look at the opportunity cost, you create 10 startups and two of them stay. Well, you've still created two more than you would have otherwise. And so we heard so many interesting things about how really the ecosystem works. And I mean, um, Leonid had talked about the IDF and specifically 8200. And yes, there's a different structure over there where everyone serves in the army and 8200 especially gets the best of the best, you know, the 1%. And we don't have that here. But when you look at how the ecosystem interacts, I think that was some of our biggest takeaways was how the private sector companies engage the municipal sector, engage the academic and R&D facilities there, talk to the venture capitalists and work with the Israeli army. That is something that at times is foreign in the United States of the Defense Department reaching out to a jungle disc and working collaboratively with the UTSA, talking with the Scaleworks and Geekdom Fund. That happens naturally over there and it's born out of decades of some must do, but also just the talent that exists there. And so I think those are some of the biggest takeaways. And and we get much more specific in some of the strategies from it, but just how that ecosystem operates is something we feel we have an opportunity to replicate in some level here in San Antonio. Yeah, and I think uh, many of the folks here feel believe that we do a good job on, I'll call them public-private collaboration between city, county, private sector companies, um, defense here in uh, all of our military, um, the defense contractors that are in town, uh, all in- interact at a, at a level that I would say is much better than I've experienced in cities outside of San Antonio in the U.S. And what I'm hearing you say is that um, over there in Israel, they're, they've taken it to even another level of collaboration and cohesiveness from the non-military government to the military branches to the private sector working together. You're exactly right. And it's not a knock I, I on San Antonio. I completely agree with you. I think we do it better than a lot of places. But when I look at our ecosystem and the academic expertise we have, the defense missions largely around the Air Force, the intelligence community, our unique municipal kind of government situation with the city and their ownership of our energy utility, our water system, our transportation system being very closely aligned in our county, I think we have a unique ecosystem that you could put those pieces together in even a more accelerated and effective manner, similar to what we saw over there. Um, and so it's exciting to see Head and Leonid and Silverfort travel over so quickly after our visit as well, just to kind of see what's happening in San Antonio. Because I think 
one of our missions outside of what we were taking away was just to put San Antonio on the map in Israel of the ecosystem we have here, what we're doing around cybersecurity for the future and collaborations and engagements that might exist. So and as I think about um, San Antonio-based companies with offices in Tel Aviv, I can only think of one right now that I used to work for. Do, do, you know, if, as we went on this mission, do we have others that were over there? No, in terms of formal offices, and we're actually in the midst of a um, process with the city of San Antonio being funded by the Brookings Institute that's really looking at global competitiveness and global markets, and we have crunched our, all the hard data out there. And some of it's re- related to the composition of our industry. You know, Jungle Disc is one of, you know, a handful of product companies doing business internationally. As you know, Brett, we have a large services industry in the security space here, and a lot of that's funneled into the Department of Defense and federal government. And so when you look at the hard and raw data between San Antonio and Israel, it's not there today. When you look at some of the more, as I'd call it, soft data, the cultural engagements, the some of the longer-term relationships, I think there's more there than meets the eye if you just took it on the hard data side. Yeah. I think that you can bring example of Boston. In Boston, there are a lot of uh, Israeli startup headquarters of Israeli startups. And if you go and ask people on the flight, Tel Aviv, Boston, where they are working, majority of passengers are working for startup companies. Yeah. And so that started um, about 10 or 15 years ago, really, the connection between those two cities? Uh, Probably even 20. 20, yeah, now. I guess this is why I have gray hair in my beard at this point. So San Antonio is uh, one we we call ourselves Military City USA. I think that's official now, isn't it, Will? It is. It's, I think it actually has been trademarked. Okay, um, it's trademarked Military City USA. So we, we have a, a large veteran community here. as uh, so We've got service members across, uh, I think, all of the different uh, branches at this point, especially with the medical stuff we have going on here. Uh, so... From a veteran community perspective, uh, San Antonio, this is another one where I think there's a this post-military community where people have the relationships they get out. They maybe know some other veterans, but making that transition from military career service into the private sector um, is something that they struggle with. How, how does that, with everyone in Israel um, joining the military and then serving time and, and coming out as a veteran, how, how is that transition from military service to private sector over there? So obviously it's a little bit different, right? Because people serve for a, usually for a few years, uh, but everyone does it. So as opposed to you know in the U.S. where uh, if you go work for uh, something like that, it's usually a long-term uh, career. In Israel, you have almost everyone uh, doing these few years and then uh, becoming available for the private sector. So if we look at uh, Unit 800 or other intelligence units. It's just, you know, a constant stream of people that are, you know, coming into the industry at uh, quite a young age with uh, the kind of training that you don't normally find with such young people and are available for, uh, you know, for companies. So our companies and, and others, you know, we all uh, get these uh, fresh people out of the army and, and it's, uh, you know, a huge advantage. Also, yeah, there is a, a very strong community of these people that graduated from uh, uh, these units, not just intelligence, right? Every kind of unit, but if you look at cybersecurity, then there is a very strong uh, community of ex-intelligence uh, uh, soldiers where you have, you know, 
uh, meetups and you have even you know a dedicated uh, startup accelerator for uh, graduates of a 200 so there's this very strong uh, community uh, which is you know in the center of this uh, cyber security ecosystem excellent well we're going to uh, take a break for the bottom of the hour news traffic and weather update you're listening to cyber talk radio on 1200 wai we will be back talking some more similarities on uh, Texas to Tel Aviv and the whole uh, community here and there, um, as long with uh, overall kind of survey the threat landscape and wherever this discussion takes itself. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined by uh, a room full of guests this week uh, in a program I'm calling uh, Texas to Tel Aviv here as uh, we uh, talk cybersecurity with a few folks in from Israel. And uh, we've got uh, one of our uh, local cybersecurity ambassadors, uh, Will Garrett, joining us as well, who kind of facilitated this uh, meeting and trip uh, out uh on a return from uh, his visit there recently here. It was about two months ago now, Will? Yeah, end of October. End of October. So uh, we were talking uh, on during the break a uh, little bit about uh, over there, it, you've got Tel Aviv as kind of major city, uh, but then there's cyber activities going on in Jerusalem now and in some, some other cities over there in Israel. So uh, can one of you all talk about uh, kind of the dynamics of cybersecurity industry growing and evolving in Israel? And I can start, probably the wrong person, the one person not from Israel, Brett, uh, but from our kind of outside-in look and what we learned over there. Uh, while we were there over the course of about 10 days, we visited Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Beersheba, and it was interesting, kind of the similarities of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem to what we'd call this central Texas tech corridor here between San Antonio and Austin. Tel Aviv being a much more modern, high tech from a look, feel, you know, boulevards where I, I think the common joke kind of head is you can, you know, throw a rock and hit a founder on Rothschild. Um, and so, you know, very similar to kind of that feel that Austin would give you and being known as a, you know, tech hub look at the startups per capita in Israel and the concentration in Tel Aviv. And then you, when we went to Jerusalem, very different. I mean, physically, the building's very different, all built in white stone. I mean, the city itself looks drastically different than Tel Aviv. And how far apart are those two cities? Very close. <laughs> it's uh, 40 miles. 40 miles. Okay. So Slightly closer than San Antonio, ourselves Austin. in Austin, although our drive took just as long. It was it was similar in traffic. So if you're, if in, you're in, the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, kind of driving from San Francisco down to Palo Alto might only be 26 miles, but it still takes an hour and a half. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And similar to us, although we're not there yet in the central Texas region, they are building a light rail in between the two communities um, okay. to connect them. But in Jerusalem, we found an ecosystem much more similar to San Antonio. I mean, I would, would argue a little bit further ahead. Um, but from a tech standpoint, how does Jerusalem organize and structure and fund and support startups there and attract startups there with such a powerful neighbor in Tel Aviv? And 
there are many likenesses between programs like a Bio Jerusalem, which in fact has a has an MOU with Biomedicei here to talk about collaboration and what they're working on. And then Beersheba, although not right there next to Jerusalem, um, even further south, is a community in, around Ben-Gurion University, one of the universities in Israel. They have built up a tech park, a massive research and development park. And it is assumed at some point that Army Cyber Command moves in Israel down to Beersheba. And so it's a complex, very similar to what we have at Port San Antonio with our Air Force Cyber Command. And of course, across the runway on Lackland Air Force Base, the intelligence missions of the Air Force. And the infrastructure and the mission and the companies that had moved there, I think, is where we're seeing Port San Antonio go. How do you build a complex that puts the infrastructure, the technology, the capabilities, you know, literally and figuratively across the street from the customer. And we saw that, you know, in fruition, probably, you know, a 10-year vision of the port. We saw that in Bersheva in terms of the commercial and multinational companies that had located there, largely in the hopes of academic partnerships and military partnerships with the Cyber Command. So it's very interesting to see those three communities and the similarities that it tracks to the San Antonio-Austin, the Central Texas region, and some of the dynamics that are, are good, and then also some of the dynamics that present opportunities and challenges for San Antonio as we build our own brand within this area of Texas. Yeah. So if you're uh, hearing about Port San Antonio for the first time, we had on uh, Jim Persbach from the port here on CyberTalk Radio. You can listen to our, our past episodes uh, on iTunes podcasts or Pocket Casts or your favorite podcasting on an Android device or as well as on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, if you're caught this uh, episode and you're listening to us uh, mid-air here on 1200 WAI. Uh, the rebroadcast of this will be online on Tuesday here after we air on Saturday night. So it was interesting you draw that parallel there. So uh, for you founding uh, a cybersecurity company, are you in Tel Aviv? Are you in Jerusalem? How did you think about where to, to start your company? So our company is uh, located in Tel Aviv, as probably most uh, startups today. Um, all of us founders uh, live in Tel Aviv, and uh, most of our friends too. Uh, it's important to say that even though Israel is planning to move many of the cyber or the intelligence units down south, they are still currently nearby Tel Aviv. So even when I used to you know, be a commander in the, in the uh, unit, I was living already in Tel Aviv. So, you know, and later studying in Tel Aviv University and so on. So there is a big uh, hub there for, uh, for startups. Uh, there is, however, uh, as Will said, some uh, new uh, new thing going on in uh, Jerusalem and Be'er Sheva, uh, specifically in the cybersecurity uh, era. So in Be'er Sheva, there is a very strong uh, attempt to build a, a strong cybersecurity community, and with the upcoming uh, shift of the of the headquarters of the the intelligence into this area, they also hope to get a lot of you know. Uh, young professional cybersecurity experts down there. Uh, but still right now, it's a very uh, hard competition for them because as you said, everything is so close. So, you know, when you are living in Jerusalem and you are just 40 minutes drive from Tel Aviv, even if you live there, you know, you might as well work for a Tel Aviv company and, you know, get a higher salary. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, new companies there and a lot of uh, stuff going on. Uh, but, uh, you know, the fact that everything is so close make it very easy to collaborate. Yeah. And then so y you taught at the university in Tel Aviv, and you mentioned that there's a university now at that, Will, you mentioned at the third location, the uh, third city there, Beersheba. 
Yeah. Is there a university that does computer science or cyber research in Jerusalem? There is, of course, uh, computer science in the Hebrew University. It's a University of Jerusalem, as well as in all other universities. Uh, but still, if you will look at uh, the grade or ranking, worldwide ranking, the best is not in Jerusalem, not in Tel Aviv, not in Beersheba, but in Haifa. The Technion today is uh, number, I think, 12 in the world. So most of uh, U.S. universities uh, training in computer science is not, is not as good as in Technion. And uh, maybe I'm a little bit affected because I have PhD in mathematics from Technion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, loyal to your alma mater. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and switching on the, this uh, academic side for a minute. So, Will, I know one of the things we have an issue with here in the U.S. on a job placement is so you have uh, professionals that will go into the Air Force here. They may serve four, eight, ten years. They learn lots of amazing cybersecurity things, but they don't get out of the military with a college degree. So when you went into the 8200 unit over there, you worked for six years. Do you come out with a bachelor's degree or something that's recognized by the private sector? Or how does Israel handle that transition? So there are a lot of uh, programs in the Israeli military and intelligence that include a bachelor's degree. So many of the people in our unit uh, did their bachelor's degree during uh, the military. It's also important to say that there is a uh, uh, something that is you know, not very common, but uh, some people in Israel do their bachelor degree during high school, even before they joined the army. So both my co-founders did their bachelor degree in mathematics by the, age of, by the age of 18, before they even joined Unit 800. And by the way, this is part of the way Unit 800 finds its best people, right? Because uh, it's very easy to find those people that already did their bachelor degree. I even, I even had one that uh, did a master's degree when EJ just joined with me, the unit at age 18. Uh, another thing that uh, we have is the fact that some of the uh, training in these units is uh, considered uh, as something that you can use for credits instead of some university courses. So the universities in Israel recognize the military courses uh, instead of some of the points you need to uh, do during your uh, studies. Yeah, so it sounds like some of the things that they figured out on the academic side as well, Will, um, it's, I know we've talked here about um, working with some of the universities on internal and now and some of the, the cyber training you can get an associate's degree while you're in um, the Air Force cyber school and training there. Um, some of that sounds like it's coming along, but maybe we're still not quite um, as advanced. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that is one example of the collaboration, kind of cohesiveness of the ecosystem we saw over there where we, we are making strides to it. In fact, San Antonio's led in some pilot programs. We're giving, you know, recognition and rank in enhancement to Air Force members for different professional certifications. How do you tie that corporate sector with military experience? And then also from the universities mentioned, we did not visit all of them, but the way they think about, and it's similar to the municipal governments that we met with, how they think about tech transfer and commercialization. And you think about our university system here and professors focused on tenure, and that is tied to peer-reviewed R&D and papers and, at, to a certain extent, patents. Um, but over there, it's very focused on the patents and how do you get those patents out of the university and that IP commercialized. And I, I would say that one 
one moment when we were meeting, in fact, with Yisim, which is the kind of tech transform of Hebrew University, on their slide as part of the you know IP that had been or the technology created there was Mobileye, and they kind of brushed through it um, ultimately because they sold stake in Mobileye before the acquisition by Intel at 15 billion largest of any Israeli tech company, but to have that type of technology come out of a university environment would be something I think here, as we talk to UTSA and some of the universities in San Antonio doing that type of R&D, how do you really help faculty and staff focus on patentable IP and commercializing that IP and get it out of there? So that's where some of the lessons learned in collaboration, I think, can help our academic sector, which is already very strong on the training side of the house, but maybe not so on the on the company creation yeah. side. So, uh, I mean, a, a shift different between grant-based research, which is what most of the universities are looking for here, to commercializable research there. Uh, so, I guess, teaching at City University in New York and then the University in Tel Aviv, do you see that difference from the academic um, institution perspective on how they um, think about rewarding you as a, a professor? Mm. I think it's quite similar, but uh, the commercialization in Tel Aviv is uh, much more advanced than the City University of New York. Uh, but at the same time, uh, leading universities in the United States, and the, among them MIT, where I uh, work for some time, is, has a very clear and very good program of commercialization. And of course, they benefited from many startups. And uh, so I, I think that uh, the best uh, universities in the United States have better and more clear uh, commercialization program than universities in Israel. Yeah, it's it's interesting as the one with like just the size and scale of the the U.S. And I guess we were talking about uh, this. I mean, some as well in between the break. It's just lots of things in the U.S. are opt in versus maybe there where some of the stuff is more uh, mandatory or controlled. Like uh, from identifying the the folks that will go into like a high unit like 8200 where here in the u.s there's a cyber patriot program where folks maybe self-select them their way in and they end up coming into um getting into the air force academy getting into uh the naval academy or the mil any of our military schools to go do um, computer science and cyber uh from there uh where as you said there you go through the tests you take are what we call the ASVAB um, and something more complicated than that, I hope, because the ASVAB is not really going to test you for cyber very well um, and and get you to get the right kind of people into a, a unit. Going through on that transition uh, from military to private sector again, so there's some knowledge that you get that you're allowed to kind of use in the background, but you can't necessarily just go commercialize everything uh, that you learned while you were serving your country. Uh, how do you you kind of walk that line and think about uh, going when you're building this? You get to use the knowledge you have, but you can't necessarily apply it all the time. Yeah, so this is a, obviously a big challenge, right? You out of the unit, you have a lot of knowledge that is not uh, something that the public uh, is aware of or, or the the commercial industry. Uh, so of course, it's uh, very important not to use this very specific knowledge that you have. Still, I think that even if you are not using uh, any specific uh, knowledge that you have from the offensive side, still the, the understanding of the field allows you to create better cybersecurity solutions even without leveraging any existing uh, or very particular knowledge. For example, you talked about checkpoints. So 
Gil Schwaid also, you know, uh, who founded the Checkpoint also came from the same unit uh, with knowledge that wasn't necessarily, you know, the very specific uh, types of attacks that they were dealing with, but still a very good understanding of what the market needs uh, in this specific area. Yeah. So, and as you uh, are now, how many years have you been uh, out of the military? Um, five. Five years. So you see, you now kind of have the career that's half military, half private sector. Um, and so looking at that uh, in the military, you're in intensive training programs, and you're learning things. What sort of different things are you learning in the private sector? Or how are you continuing to gain knowledge to keep your skills relevant? So I think uh, there are a lot of differences. Uh, when I was you know, serving the, in the unit, uh, first uh, as a soldier, then later as a, as a team leader and a group leader, uh, it's a very different types of motivation, right? You're so uh, into, you know, what you're doing because it's so important for the, you know, security of your country. So the motivation is, is uh, really amazing. And you find yourself walking into the middle of the night almost every day for several years. Um, and, you know, when you go out to the commercial area, of course, you don't have this kind of motivation. But still, I think that at least in startups, you find another kind of drive, which is the innovation and, and you know, really creating something which I love and, and also give me this kind of motivation. There are also, uh, of course, uh, uh, many other uh, differences in the way uh, you work. So, for example, when you just get out of the unit, you have a very good understanding of uh, cybersecurity but no understanding at all of uh, the you know commercial field so you have no idea you know how to sell to a customer uh, what you know what prices to take anything like that so usually a very good advice for people who just went out of these units and are thinking about uh, starting their own startup is to first work for some uh, other company either a small one or an or an enterprise and you know, learn this type of the business, this uh, aspect before you try and start your own company. Yeah, because there's, as you, you said, there's all sorts of things in, in uh, the private sector that uh, I think I view them spending my career in the private sector seems simple and natural to me. And a lot of this public sector side of stuff seems complicated and overwhelming. But it, it sounds like you said they're on the kind of the flip side of being in service on the the public sector in the military um there's a whole you don't ever have to deal with prices and yeah. and those type of aspects or you don't have to deal with employee turnover either like yeah. your your folks aren't gonna that's just true. show up and say they're gonna start a new startup the next morning that's what you know so i had i had many soldiers serving under me and you know they don't have a choice of saying i don't want to do this anymore yeah so it's always a question, you know, how, how much uh, as commanders in, in A200 do we need to really motivate these people when they have to be anyway. I personally believe that there's no, you know, there's no way to do what we do without having this motivation about what you do, even though you need to be there. So there's a big difference between someone who's just there and, you know, doing the, the minimum he has to do and someone who's doing uh, everything he can. Um, and yeah, that's one of the differences. But let, let me give you an example of the, the different kind of thinking. So when, you know, we just started thinking about what we want to do uh, in this company, we had a lot of uh, ideas, which I still think are, are really great, but they had to do with how to create a much more secure multi-factor authentication technology than anything that exists in the market. And I think that we had really great ideas that we, we worked on for a, for a while, but it was all from this type of thinking that 
is only looking at very advanced uh, cyber attacks, very complex tailored uh, uh, attack capabilities. And when we took it to the market, we found out that this is not really the problem. The problem is making everything you know, easier for the organization to implement, easier for the users to actually be able to use without losing productivity. All of these things that in the military you don't even care about. Right? Yeah, yeah. Security first. The users are going to deal with a complicated authentication process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, the difference is that in military you usually dealing with projects, while in civil uh, world you are uh, dealing with products. Yeah. Once it's went out, you cannot really change it at any moment. Yeah, and and people will use it much longer than you would like them to use it. Um, and maybe in your case, people are still using things which creates an opportunity for you because uh, those of you that weren't listening to the the whole program, you're joining us now. If you're running systems with NTLM uh, for your authentication, it's not secure anymore. You probably still are doing this <laughs> if you're a reasonably large-sized enterprise or a, a public utility, sadly enough, because um, you have embedded systems for vendors or if you're a hospital you probably have a medical device or medical monitoring system that is running outdated, not secure authentication, and you should be looking at technologies uh, to harden that because if not, then you want someone is inside and able to access one system. They'll be able to very quickly uh, move across your networks uh, and uh, embed themselves in. You may have, have heard the uh, acronym uh, during the, the program here, APT. Um, we've done an episode on that advanced persistent threat. Um, the hackers are getting more sophisticated. Even these um, non-nation state hackers are getting more sophisticated where they know that you have backups. They know that you're uh, monitoring things. So they'll go very slowly through your network. They will get inside and sit around for 90 days or 180 days before they really start making any noise um, so that you'll go and you'll try to roll back from your backups and then you'll find out that they're still in there and you'll go back and maybe you, you realize that you don't have an old enough backup copy or there's just so much work to rebuild the system from that backup copy. Now you're in the uh, reactive mode of trying to clean them out of an existing running system, which is uh, not a very easy task. So, uh, it's much easier to prevent them from getting in. The, one of the analogies I use for, for folks uh, is it's if you look at a, a criminal breaking into your home, uh, much easier to keep the door locked and keep them out than to come home and have to clean up the mess of them tossing every drawer all over the house um, and throwing everything out of your cabinets and then trying to figure out what's the one thing that they stole. Because um, they will do that in your computer log files. They will make a mess all over the place there'll be all sorts of noise to look through and you may or may not ever find out what they they took out of your organization uh, or where they really uh, were able to get into completely so um from an authentication perspective you guys founded this uh company a couple of years ago now uh did you raise venture capital money right away yeah, so, you know, we started just working on it ourselves for a couple of months, just figuring out what we want to do and, and start, uh, you know, pitching it to different uh, security folks at uh, different companies, both in Israel and in the U.S. And when we figure out that we have something that really, you know, solve a, a strong need, a technology that is really unique, um, then we, you know, went and met investors and raised the uh, venture capital money from, from a few venture capitalists and also some private investors. 
Yeah. And then for your investors, so they know it's going to take you a while to build the product and go to market. What kind of a, a timeline are you looking at? So that you raise that money and then when did you start trying to sign up your first group of customers for paying customers? So, you know, we started um, almost, uh, you know, two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And uh, of course, immediately started uh, building the product, uh, hiring the best people. We were uh, fortunate enough to be able to get those best people out of uh, our units uh, and uh, build a great team. And around uh, a year later, we had a product that uh, we actually started uh, installing for different companies. So now we have, uh, uh, you know, quite a few of customers across uh, different industries, uh, healthcare, uh, financial, technology companies. Um, you know, energy, uh, law firms, and so on. And we are seeing this need of authentication across basically every industry, right? Because everyone is still using password. Everyone has data that they don't want people to steal. So we see a very strong need for companies that, uh, you know, have these sensitive customers' data or, or medical records in their network and they want to protect. And in many cases, as you said, these systems that hold the most sensitive data are in many cases systems that still use password authentication or these kind of vulnerable protocols. And it's not always easy to solve these problems. Well, we're uh, coming to close the uh, program out here. So uh, on your, your trip into uh, San Antonio, did you get a chance to uh, try some Tex-Mex yet? <laughs> yeah, we, we had a, a very short time to eat, you know, because we are running from meeting to meeting. But yes. we really hope to, to try some of the local food. Good. It's yeah. for the return visit. Return right. visit. We'll save a text <laughs> mix for trip yeah. number two. We will probably visit here soon. You know, I, I have to say I'm I'm honestly uh, really overwhelmed with the you know the amount of opportunities that we have here. So I think we will definitely come back here soon. Yeah, well, that's uh, wonderful to hear. Thank you uh, all for coming out. Uh, will, thank you for helping get this organized, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you back and doing business with uh, lots of our companies here in town to uh, keep them safe and secure. Thank you. Thank you.